We're going to look at God's Word. We're going to turn to Acts chapter 19. So if you have a Bible, pull that out. If you got it on your device, power that thing up and find it. But first we're going to pray. So would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your life-giving Word. It is light in an often dark world. It provides direction where there is confusion. Father, we pray that as we live into this narrative of Acts, as we are reminded of the story of how your Holy Spirit empowered your church in beautiful, remarkable ways and and turned around this world, we pray, God, that you would do that again in our day and in our time. We have heard of your fame, Father. We know your glorious history, and our prayers do it again here and now among us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to turn to Acts chapter 19, found on page 1099 of the few Bibles you have around you. Paul, who was in Ephesus, remember I reminded you that Paul really goes to major cities um, throughout the region. That's his strategy, and he is in this city called Ephesus. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating, they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were seized with fear, and the name of the Lord was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds, and a number of them who practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. 
And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. We're told that a drachma is like a day's wage. So that's, that's some half, 50,000, who knows? That's like a lifetime salary, right? It's expensive. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. This is God's word. We have been walking through the book of Acts here at Knox, and uh, we've recently been exploring Paul's missionary journeys, following Paul and his traveling companions as, as they go around preaching the gospel, and we're, we're paying attention to the cities that Paul loves and goes to, what happens in those cities. We're trying to take away what can we learn from that um, as we think about how we live out the gospel in this city God has called us to love and to live in. And today's account, I don't know about you, that rates really high on the weird factor, doesn't it? Handkerchiefs that somehow heal, person overpowered with an evil spirit beating up seven people. This passage, it, it puts the issue, the question of power front and center before us. It is presenting to us the power of God and the, the reality of the power of evil, supernatural power, and it is proclaiming to us that the resurrection life in Jesus Christ is made available to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is not a magical power, that's not a mechanical power, it, it's a supernatural power that is made available to followers of Jesus, to Christians. A power that is always connected to the person and the presence of Jesus Christ. But for us to talk about supernatural power, both powers, supernatural powers of good, but also supernatural powers of evil, in our Western world, you know that raises more than just a few eyebrows, right? Um, we have trouble with this in the West. Um, we believe that everything, we're convinced that everything has some natural cause to it. And therefore, everything has a scientific explanation behind it. And so any thought, for instance, of a miracle, um, well, that can be explained by natural causes, most people believe. And also the negative, the, the, the problems, the pathologies, the crime, the greed, the, the, the racism, the war, the violence, all those things they have a natural cause to them. And so the evils of the world, we account for them in terms of bad psychological factors, right? Someone had a, they had a really crappy childhood, weren't raised right, they had a miseducation in their life, or maybe it's bad social systems. We try to find these, these natural explanations for this. In the West, we, we, we're so convinced that we, we can fix these deeply entrenched problems of human life. Um, we can figure it out and fix it. But it's interesting how that worldview is really wearing thin. There's a fascinating author. He's a professor, I think, at Columbia. Andrew Del Blanco is his name. He recently wrote a book called The, End of Sa the Death of Satan. That gets your attention, doesn't it? Andrew Del Blanco is a self-confessed secular atheist. And yet, listen to the first line, the opening line of his book. He says, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil 
and the intellectual resources to cope with it. He's saying our, our modern material worldview just cannot fully account for all that we experience in this world. We've, we've jettisoned this notion of a supernatural realm or reality of personal forces of good and personal forces of evil because somehow we feel it implies value judgments, right? It, it talks about then moral absolutes. And so we naturalize things. For instance, one way we do that is we, we use medical metaphors and images to talk about our pathologies. We talk about dysfunction. We talk about pathology. And it becomes harder and harder for us to, to be, be open to the reality of God, to say something's evil. But as William Shakespeare once wrote, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophies. Over and over again, here in the West, we, we try to account for all the experiences and the intractable problems we have through natural causes, but we're coming up short. The Bible doesn't have that problem. It doesn't have that problem. The Bible provides for us a framework through which we can actually account for more of reality that we see and experience. It gives us a, a fuller understanding of the world we experience. And it does so by showing us this dimension of reality, of supernatural forces at work in the world. Certainly, psychological, physiological, sociological factors are at play in what we see. They aggravate and they stir up some of the self-centeredness that seems to be so innate in us, but it, they don't create those factors. There is a devil and demons and there is a God of goodness and love. That's actually the conclusion that a, a Canadian UN peacekeeper came to, Romeo Dallaire. You probably heard of him. He was the, that lead UN peacekeeper in Rwanda during the Rwandan genocide. And it was, it was one of the most horrific genocides. And, and as he witnessed this unfolding before him, it, it undid him. Like his framework for understanding the world was utterly shattered. And he, he, he said this, as he came up to the limits of, of the horrors and tried to figure out how to make sense of this, he said, in the end, he said, I know there's a God because in Rwanda I shook hands with the devil. I have seen him, I have smelled him, I have touched him, I know the devil exists and therefore I know there is a God. Now I know this can be a struggle for many people, maybe some of us here today. Certainly for people that you know, that you work with, that you uh, hang out with. But I wonder if the struggle with accepting the reality of supernatural realities, I wonder if that's being simplistic. You know, Torontonians, we like to be sophisticated, nuanced, right, in our worldview. We like to think, yes, we're, we're sharp people. But could it be that not recognizing the multidimensionality of reality the greater spiritual depth dimensions of life, you actually might be being simplistic or naive. Or if you struggle it, with this reality, here's another angle. Would you consider that you might be culturally narrow 
on this. White Western people have great trouble with this reality of supernatural forces, but that's not true of the rest of the world. You talk to people in Africa and Asia and Latin America, and they have no trouble understanding and believing this reality. There's a, there's a collected wisdom there. These are people who have a wisdom, a cultural wisdom, and are you going to look down on that? Why not be open to what other cultures might have to teach us? Because if the Bible is right about this, then there is a dimension of life that we are not accounting for. And we will not be able to understand or deal with or defeat some of the darkness in our own hearts or in our own city. And we also won't be open to the power of goodness and joy and love that is present in God and through his kingdom. I find it so interesting that Paul, we're going to get now to this text, this is all sort of introductory, as Paul, as he meets these, these disciples in Ephesus, the first question he asks is about their understanding of the spiritual realm. It's almost like diagnostic. He's doing a, a diagnosis. He meets a number of people called disciples. and they, they were disciples, but not quite Christians. Something is missing. Their understanding, they had some understanding of Jesus that looked like they were leaning in the right direction, but something was missing that Paul could discern. They were missing the Holy Spirit. Paul notices this absence in their life, the presence of the Spirit, maybe in their behavior, maybe in their understanding. And so he asked this very direct question, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they're like, we don't even know what you're talking about. And so Paul gets straight to the heart of what it means to be a Christian. It is life in the Spirit. To be a Christian is, is not primarily to do a number of things, all that's a part of the Christian life, but it is to receive someone into your life, to receive the life-giving Spirit of God. The resurrection life of Jesus Christ is, is made available and real to all of us through the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. And throughout the Bible, there's just no ambiguity on this. It is just crystal clear. The indwelling Spirit of God it is the hallmark of both individual Christians and collectively us as a church. According to Romans 8 verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of God is not a Christian. Paul's pretty clear on that. To have your life filled with the supernatural life, presence, power of the Spirit, that is sort of the indispensable essential, the, the bottom line for what it means to be a Christian. And I just got to say, it's not something to be afraid of either. I think, you know, some people think of the Holy Spirit. Another name for it is the Holy Ghost, and people probably think the Holy Spook, Right? And they get a little freaked or frightened by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is so gentle, so gentle. And receiving the Spirit is one of the most beautiful experiences you can have. Let me just walk through some of the things the Bible teaches about what the Spirit does in us. The Spirit, in 1 Corinthians 2, says the Spirit knows the mind of God and teaches us the gospel. So the Holy Spirit is our teacher, conveying to us the truth the reality, the fullness of who God is. The Spirit of God dwells within us, Romans 8 says. I mean, so when you become a Christian, your body is a temple where the Spirit resides within you. 
The Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12 says, accomplishes all things, meaning there's a power operative here for you, accessible to your life. The Spirit is doing that good work in your life. The Spirit leads us in the way of God, Galatians 5 says. We are led, we need guidance in our life, and the Spirit is leading us in the ways of God. The Spirit witnesses with our own spirit that we are children of God. If you've ever wondered, God, what do you think of me? The Spirit testifies, saying, you are God's child. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Oh, thank goodness for that. Romans 8 says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. You know what weakness is all about. And the Spirit comes alongside to strengthen, to give aid. The Spirit intercedes on our behalf. Aren't there moments, seasons, when you face illness, where it's just like, come on, I don't even know what to pray. But the Spirit is interceding on your behalf, praying for you. The Spirit strengthens us. The Spirit gives us the character of God, the fruit of the Spirit, which are the attributes, the character of God. The Spirit is cultivating and growing them within us. It is by the power of the Spirit that we serve, Philippians 3 talks about, and it is by the power of the Spirit that we are enabled to love others, and it is by the power of the Spirit that we are enabled to experience the love of God in Christ. Romans 5 talks about how the, how the love of God is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, and he's talking about the experience of love, not just sort of the communication of mental uh, intellectual information, but it is the experience of love. When I give my kids a big hug, I have two kids. Right now, they're at ages where you know they're sort of pushing dad away. It's a dad, come on, don't do that, right? They're teens. But when they were younger, and they loved that sort of thing, when I would give my kids a great big hug, I wasn't giving them more information about my love for them. What I wanted to do is give them the experience, right? That you are loved. They didn't need me to tell them. They knew that. They needed to experience it, to feel that. This is what the Spirit of God does for us, to give us that experience. The Holy Spirit transforms our lives into the likeness of Christ. He gives us the character of Christ so that there is this bright, transforming reality in our lives giving us a, a poise, a peace, a joy, a boldness, a courage that we might never have known. And the Spirit brings us into a living communion with God and so that a life of, of prayer and worship is just a natural outflow of the Spirit God within us. And then the Spirit pours gifts and capacities and abilities in us, engaging us in God's ministry and empowering us to do the things that Jesus did. So all of the resurrection life of Jesus is made available to us through the power and the person of the Spirit. And that is the normal condition of the Christian life. We are meant to know that and to live that. So let me ask you that same question Paul asks. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Have you received the Holy Spirit? Think about that, friends. Because sometimes I wonder, is it possible that some of us, like those disciples Paul first met, know something of Jesus, but we've missed something too. We're missing 
the person of God's Holy Spirit. I often wonder, do we talk enough about the Holy Spirit? Do we celebrate enough the reality of the Holy Spirit? I don't want us to miss this at all. This is life, right? This is the power of God for living and for loving. Now, I want to be clear. Every Christian, if you are a Christian, if you are confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, every Christian has the Holy Spirit. So you don't, if, you're, if you're a Christian, you don't need to worry about that. That is done deal. You cannot confess the name of Jesus as Lord and be a Christian. And while every Christian has the Holy Spirit, not every Christian is filled with the Spirit. I think we leak, right? There's a variety of ways we leak. And, and so the question we need to ask is, do, are we seeking out the Spirit's filling? In Ephesians, Paul talks about that, how he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's talking about an ongoing active, continuous reality. The filling of the Spirit is not a one-time shot, not a one-shot deal. It is an ongoing experience of the life of God. And so God invites us as we run dry, as we leak out for whatever reason, whether it's sin, whether it's just absence from God, God invites us to come back and be filled And so before we continue on with some of the other things in this passage, what I'd love to do right now is just pause for a minute and invite you to ask God to fill you with the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus says in Luke, he says, you know, God's a good father. You know, our fathers give us good things. And then he says, how much more will your father in heaven give you the Holy Spirit for those who ask? That's all it takes is to ask. So shall we ask him? We're simply going to do that now. We're going to simply ask the Holy Spirit to come and fill anyone who wishes to be filled. We're going to pray an ancient prayer. The church has prayed this for centuries. And it is simply this, come Holy Spirit. And as we do this, I invite you, if you wish, just to open your hands as an expression, as a way to say to God, God, I am open to what you have to give me today. So let's come to God in prayer. Come, Holy Spirit. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us today. Fill us. Empower us. Change us so that we are like Jesus. Use us and empower us for your purposes. Come, Holy Spirit. Fall fresh on us today. In Jesus' name, amen. This is how the resurrection life of Jesus lives in us, through the Holy Spirit. If you prayed that prayer, if you ask God, know it. God's Spirit is in you and will give you all you need to live this Jesus life. To do the things that Jesus did. And you see that here in this passage. As these believers receive the Spirit of God and as Paul, empowered by the Spirit, look at what happens. The fruit of the power of the Spirit at work in this passage. People are taught the good news. People are healed. Healing comes to broken lives. Freedom is given to people who are trapped by practices that have no life. 
Now, it'd be real easy for us to move to those signs and wonders uh, parts of this passage. We'll get there. But I think we need to pause and stop and just look what happens immediately after this. Paul, patiently, for two years, teaches. This is a work of the Holy Spirit too, isn't it? This is a good work of the Spirit to help people understand who is Jesus, to answer questions, to tease out all the implications of God's kingdom. That is a powerful work of God's Spirit, the work of evangelism, essentially. So we read that the, all the people in that province knew the good news of Jesus. Can we pray for more of that here? Can you pray for our Alpha Course? Alpha, Alpha Course is a little like that. It's not a two-year program. It's only 10 weeks. Um, it's a doable thing, but it, is, it, is, it does just that. It, it, it teaches. It engages people's questions and pray for the good work of, of the Spirit there. Pray that the Word of God is spread widely and grows in power. Let's pray for more powerful evangelism through our church, for bold witnessing among us, because that's a regular product of the Spirit's filling as well, is that there is a boldness given to people. You'll read that throughout the Acts. The Spirit comes and people speak boldly. So how about us? How about us timid Canadians? How about God give us a whole new boldness in sharing the Word of God and being a beautiful, gentle, winsome witness amongst your friends or in your workplaces? The Spirit will do that. And then we see the Spirit empowering the church for signs and wonders. We read that God did extraordinary things through the church. People were healed. Forces of evil were challenged and cast out. And I know, I know as we read this, you know, some of us somewhere are saying, oh my goodness, seriously, handkerchiefs that heal? Isn't this a little unreal? You expect me to believe this? And I don't want to be hard on anyone who is struggling with that. Um, miracles, God's intervention in the natural order, they're hard to believe in. I think we've got to just be honest about that, right? And they should be. And there's a really fascinating passage in the Bible, Matthew 28, where I think that's openly acknowledged. So this is Jesus who has been risen from the dead. And we're told in Matthew 28, the apostles meet Jesus. They encounter Jesus on the mountainside. And it reads this, when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. But some doubted. Isn't that a remarkable admission? I mean, the author of the early biographies of Jesus, the early Christian document, is telling us that some of the founders of Christianity couldn't believe the miracle of the resurrection, even though they were staring Jesus in the face, even though they were in his presence. Some doubted. Now, why on earth is that in our Bibles? Other, there's no other reason other than that had to have happened, right? And it's a helpful caution for us Western modern people today. You know, we think, all oh, those earlier people, they, they, were, they believed things. You know, they were far more easier to believe these sorts of things. But there they are, and they doubted. It's very human. They were just like us today, too. What's important, I think, for us to, to realize as we consider these miracles, these, these powers of God at work, is, is their purpose. The purpose of this power of God at work in the miracles and signs and wonders. 
Some people saw this power as, um, as sort of a form of magic, sort of a mechanical thing. You know, if I just learn the right incantations, if I say the right words, then shazam, God will act. And you read about that, right? These seven sons of Sceva, the, of the high priest, they thought they could access this power without connection to the person and presence of Jesus Christ. Um, a lot of people think of miracles this way, as sort of these divine magic tricks designed to wow and impress. But miracles in the Bible, and particularly the, the, the shows of power in the life of Jesus, were never magic tricks, never these raw displays of power designed only to impress, only to coerce you to belief. You never see Jesus in the Gospels saying something like, yeah, see that tree over there? Boom! And it blows up in fire, right? Hey? No, not a bit of it. Instead, Jesus always uses his miraculous power, the apostles too, to heal the sick, to feed the hungry, to raise the dead, to release the bound. Miracles and wonders were, were signs of the power of God over creation. They were a sign of, of a holy restoration for a broken creation that was happening in Jesus Christ. And so they were always redemptive, but they are, were also revelatory too. They are pointing to a greater reality. One writer and Pastor Tim Keller is really helpful for us understanding that, that pointer, that revelatory quality of miracles. He says this, we modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order. But Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem what is wrong, to heal the world where it is broken. And his miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but they are also wonderful foretastes of what he's going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but they are a promise to our hearts that the world we have always wanted is in fact coming. They are a promise that God is at work in this world, that he is renewing and restoring all that is bent and bruised and broken in this world. And we see that these miracles go somewhere. They, they lead to worship to awe. In verse 17, we read that uh, the name of the Lord was held in high honor throughout the region. And many people who believed now uh, came, openly confessed what they had done. A number who practiced sorcery brought their scrolls, scrolls together and burned them. So when faced with the, the real power of God's Spirit, people are led to acts of worship. There's repentance. There's a, there's a recognition that what they thought was magically powerful holds nothing in comparison to the power of God. Their world was unsettled, and when your world is unsettled with more reality than your current worldview can comprehend or grasp or account for, you know you're dealing with the real God. It stirs things up. It, it humbles you. Too. It brings a sense of awe and humility all at once. And that can be hard, right, when we encounter God in that way. That can be unnerving. And yet we see people believe. They, they like open their lives. They, they gave up massive amounts of money 
to follow this Jesus, what would lead them to do that? It's the power of the gospel. It is at the same time this this sense of God's omnipotence, like we are dealing with someone beyond anything that we could imagine. And yet, at the same moment, it is a demonstration of the kindness and the love of God together, married together. And is that that moves people to come clean about their lives, to submit all of their life before a God who is not only powerful, but who loves passionately. When the Spirit of God opens our eyes to see and experience the love of God truly, to see that this holy God loves us so much that he would die for us, sacrificing his life for ours. A taste of that love, that's better than any miracle you could experience. All miracles, all those signs, they, they point to that core reality of the love of God in Jesus Christ. That's the Spirit's greatest power available to each one of us. How God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Would you receive that miracle today? Would you be freshly filled, empowered in a whole new way through the Spirit of God? The Father would love to do that for you. Let's pray. When we think of power, God, when we think of your power, we might initially be frightened by it. I think because we've been bullied by other forces of power in this world. We've seen displays of power that harm or coerce. Thank you that you never do that. You come with all of your power, but with love and grace. Thank you for that beautiful invitation, God. And we pray that you would pour out your spirit among us today so that we would experience your love fully in our hearts. So that we would know we are your adopted children. That we are your cherished children today. Speak that word to us, Holy Spirit. And may that equip us for a beautiful, miraculous life in which you use us in ways beyond our best imaginings. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.